Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as our guest, Faith Freed, a licensed psychotherapist with two MA degrees. Faith started seeing clients in her San Francisco Bay Area office in 2009 and has recently transitioned to a new Santa Barbara practice. Prior to pursuing her professional passion, Faith was an advertising writer at several San Francisco ad agencies. She is trained at the University of Texas in Austin, as well as the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology in Palo Alto. She's also the mother of two children and the published author of a personal development spiritual book, as well as her recently published book, Starting Therapy, A Guide to Getting Ready, Feeling Informed, and Gaining the Most from Your Sessions. Her official credentials, as well as her life experience and street cred, give her a unique ability to understand and help you gain clarity, peace, and more of what you want in life. Her specialties include personal growth, creativity, love, spirituality, anxiety, and EMDR. Welcome, Faith. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. I'm so happy to have on as our guest today, Faith Freed. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Josephine. Thanks for inviting me to participate. Yeah, and I know you have this book called Starting Therapy, and I really wanted to have you on as a guest to just help us understand the basics of therapy for someone who maybe hasn't really done it before and has a lot of questions about the whole process in general. And so I think your book is a really good resource for people. Maybe talk about what made you think about writing a book like this. Sure. You know, a lot of people, as you know, Josephine, suffer from anxiety. It's one of the most common things that brings people into therapy. And I don't want people to be too anxious about starting therapy to get help. Does that make sense? It's sort of ironic because people are anxious about new things kind of naturally. And people who have high anxiety, they have questions, concerns, worries, and they might stress about that to the point where their doubts get in the way of them seeking therapy. And knowing how people start out often with just kind of feeling unsure and slightly uncomfortable until they ease into it. I just wanted to make it a smoother process for them so that they can get a lot of questions answered before they even come in and have a measure of comfort when they land on the couch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe how to think about kind of how you feel about the process too, right? Does this seem like a normal experience for therapy, maybe for somebody who's never done it before? Yes. Yes. And as you probably know, just from working with clients, a lot of times there are really basic questions, very innocent questions. And you can be in the field for a long time as a clinician and sort of feel like everybody knows how it goes. Everybody knows what therapy is all about. We've all seen it on television, or but it remains mysterious to a lot of people. And some of the notions that we get from the media aren't necessarily reassuring because they aren't accurate. So people come to find out, oh, okay, this isn't a two-way street. This is really going to be all about me. But at the same time, there isn't pressure. There isn't judgment. And 
your therapist is going to be different for you than anybody else that you would normally talk to or relate with. So just kind of knowing that and knowing that that first session is going to be different than the sessions to follow. And it takes a little while to warm up and to get comfortable and just kind of to know that there will be some logistics up front and what's customary. Just those very basic things can make people know what to expect and to feel a lot more comfortable about getting started. Right. So what are some of the typical reasons why someone might be interested in therapy? I mentioned anxiety. So that's a biggie along with depression. Those two are super common. I kind of think of them as the usual suspects. And along with that, we have issues like trauma, which people can seek treatment for it at any stage. It could be that something happened in childhood and now a person hits middle age and all of a sudden this is up for them because maybe they are a parent and have a child of the similar age when something happened to them and that triggers memories. But anyway, so trauma is common. Also addiction or behavior modification can be a motivation But what I I think I stressed in the book is that you don't really have to have, uh, let's call it a mental illness or a pathology to seek therapy and to gain a lot out of it. It can be something as simple as just really being motivated to know yourself. You know, like Socrates said, know thyself. That in itself is a legitimate reason to go in and to undertake an inquiry, an inner inquiry. Also, what's common will be like regular life stuff, stages and phases of life. So maybe you have someone in middle school who's really struggling to make friends, and then you might have someone older going off to college, leaving the nest. You might have someone who's getting married and has some things to iron out about that. Then you have midlife crisis, career changes, later life, retirement. So these kinds of transitions can be quite major. And that's a common reason to seek therapy, you know, kind of adjusting to the new normal. Also, relationships are huge. And as an MFT, of course, I see a lot of people coming in about relationships, whether it's dealing with parents, dealing with parenting, siblings sometimes, families, but often it's that primary relationship. So people will seek couples counseling or, you know, a single person might be interested in in a healthy dating life or, you know, kind of fixing old patterns that aren't working, that kind of thing. So it sounds like some people have specific goals that they think about that therapy could be really helpful to really be able to focus on these goals that they want to accomplish or to process past traumas and think about kind of how to move forward past that. But I also like how you mentioned that you don't need to have a goal and just a healthy desire to get to know yourself better. And I love a part in your book, in the very beginning, you say, when clients approach me, I have immediate respect for them. Reaching out as a sign of strength, resilience, humility, intelligence, hope, and responsibility. There's kind of a strength that comes along with wanting to understand yourself, right? And to kind of make positive changes. 
Yeah, I think that curiosity is a real life force for people. And to never lose that curiosity about what goes on internally is an endlessly fascinating journey. And a great partner on the path is a therapist. They can be a lens for you like no other. I think that when people are motivated by that curiosity and also by that sense of taking responsibility for what's not working, for recognizing, you know what? Okay. I notice problems in various relationships. I have trouble with my boss. I'm not getting along with my sister and there's conflict with my partner. Maybe it's me. It doesn't necessarily have to be others all the time. And, and usually it's complex. It's dynamic. So, you know, every relationship has a 50-50 kind of, I guess, spread of responsibility in a way, but taking one's own responsibility and owning up to what can I look at? What can I examine and possibly work on so that I can feel more fulfilled and have healthier relationships? That that kind of self-examination is what really excites me and is really what I respect. And I like the quote you dug up, thank you, because that also is, it informs the book in terms of, this is an invitation to remember that therapy is out there for everyone at any time. And there's no need to pathologize it or to have to explain it or justify it. And yeah, you might have a really clear goal going in and that's always lovely. But what's funny is that that goal that you come in with, sometimes that's just the tip of the iceberg, or it's maybe just the reason why you got in the door. And then you find out there are other things that you want to work on. And that's quite normal too. Things can be pretty fluid, at least the way that I practice therapy. I'm sure there are others that are a little bit more tactical, you know, where you have the contract and you're kind of measuring your progress and there's nothing wrong with that either. You know, it kind of depends on what the client's looking for. Are they really just wanting to solve this one thing? What I find is more typical in my personal experience is that we tackle that one thing or the presenting problem And we stay focused on it as a target, but we're very respectful of whatever else might arise along the way. And sometimes those secondary topics end up being the primary ones that Mm -hmm. really need looking at. Right. So the stated goal and concern is not always what you end up really digging into. (laughs) Sometimes as individuals, you don't know. I mean, what something that might be bothering you is kind of what it comes to the forefront of your understanding and consciousness. But part of therapy is to kind of dig a little bit deeper sometimes too, right? Or that's often the goal of therapy too, to kind of uncover things that maybe weren't in the forefront of your consciousness either. um, Right. Well, you use the word client. And as a physician myself, we're trained to, you know, we call our patients patients instead of clients. And I'm trying to move more to the word client versus patient. But can you talk a little bit about why therapists and psychologists use client versus patient? Sure. And I think as an MD for you, Josephine, it is a different ballgame. Patient sounds really appropriate to me in that context. For me as an MFT, my goal is to normalize the human experience 
this is a perfectly okay and legitimate thing to do to come into therapy. And it doesn't mean that you're mentally ill. In fact, it can mean quite the opposite, that you're just really invested in maintaining mental health mental wellness and balance. And so I feel like, you know, patient, what goes along with that might be some notions about the doctor kind of healing what's wrong. And so it kind of points to that maybe disease, if you will. So I just like to have more of a positive kind of, I guess, term to make people feel like I'm their equal, I'm their peer, and I don't want there to be any kind of superiority or authority dynamic going on that would impede their progress. I feel like people are responsive when you treat them human being to human being, and it allows for them to feel more disarmed and to open up and to feel less intimidated so that there is no hierarchy and we can just kind of talk as mutually respectful people. Yeah. Well, let's move on to kind of more of like the, what happens in therapy. Cause I think the listener is, is kind of interested in that. I kind of think of this discussion as the process of what you do. So there's a lot of different kinds of therapists out there. There's a lot of different specialties. There's a lot of different letters behind people's names. How does one maybe just start the process of figuring out who might be a good fit for them and who to reach out to? Yeah, good question. Luckily, we have the internet. You know, these days, it's a lot easier because a lot of clinicians will have websites and, Mm -hmm. you know, it didn't used to be that way. So that is a shortcut and it's wonderful. Wonderful. I think that back in the day, people would use a referral, maybe from a physician or from a friend. And word of mouth, I think, is still the best way probably to get a referral. It's just not quite as common as people Googling it, as we say. And so what you can do is research either the problem or the solution. So let's say you're looking for trauma treatment and you know that something that happened a long time ago is still bothering you today and you just want to kind of go back, revisit that, clean it up, put it in a box, tie it up with a bow so it's not bothering you and triggering you ongoing forevermore. So you could look up trauma treatment. You could look up trauma therapists. And then if you were looking at that and you thought, okay, gosh, this EMDR, for example, sounds really like a well-researched, effective tool to treat trauma. I want an EMDR therapist. So then you could Google that. And of course, in your area with your zip code, typically, if you want to do in-person therapy, although that's changing now here with the pandemic. So there's a lot more virtual therapy happening and that might be less of a concern. But in a perfect world, if you can see your therapist in person, then you're just looking for profiles of therapists in your local area that have a specialty or an expertise with what you're wanting to address. And psychology today, honestly, is a very, very good vehicle for that. You can just put in your zip code and then look up therapists in your area and read their profiles and see if they have checked off the concerns that you have of things that they work on. So that's a good first start, but you might want to see if you can talk to that therapist on the phone before you go in and get a feel or a sense for what they're like. 
And you can even shop around a little bit and have a first session with a few different therapists to see what they're like and what the differences are and, and who you click with. Right. Okay. So you maybe go to psychology today, you search kind of the type of treatment you're looking for, the type of topics. I think you can search by gender. You can also search by insurance coverage, which is helpful for people. So let's say you make that appointment with a therapist and you kind of go in the room for the first time. What are you in that first visit? First off, I want to kind of have this discussion about kind of what to expect for that first visit and then how to think about it if it worked for you or not? Yeah, good questions. And this is, I think, discussed a lot in the book. So first off, the first session is going to be like any new greeting and meeting with a new person. So you're just, you know, getting a feel. You might have a little bit of nervousness, just kind of normal, I don't know you yet kind of hesitancy. And then you'll warm up in that first session and gradually, start to build a rapport or a comfort level. And if that doesn't start to happen within the first few sessions, you know, that might be a red flag. Oh, this might not be the right person for me because ultimately trust will be the cornerstone of the treatment. So if there is trust, then I think the healing can happen. And if there isn't, it's going to be a long road and maybe not going to be super effective. So that's the ultimate goal. That being said, It takes time sometimes to build trust and you can feel a little bit ambivalent at the beginning or at points in therapy. And I think that that's quite normal, but you do want to get that kind of gut level sense that, okay, this is a fit. I can talk to this person and potentially over time, I probably would be able to tell them anything. That's a good hit that this is a fit. And so apart from that, Remember, you're not, this isn't going to be a friend. You're not looking for a social connection. You're looking for somebody who can be a confidant and a guide and an expert for you and can really be compassionate and non judgmental and receive whatever it is that you want to share. And so don't think of them as a friend. If they don't dress the way you like or they have some quirky quality that you find strange, you know, those kinds of things aren't very important. It's more about, can this relationship work in the service of your highest good, you know, in this container? And apart from fit, I guess in the first session, you just want to be prepared for a small bit of paperwork, which I think is typical. Anytime you start up new with a doctor or a dentist, you have that and you'll get a consent form. And you want to read that really carefully because that's kind of the rules of the road and it will contain information that you need to know, cancellation policies or any exceptions to confidentiality, fees, that sort of thing. And then you may or may not get some background forms. Some clinicians will do that in person live and just kind of go over whatever it is you want to share about your past. Others will give you a form of like one to three pages you could fill out before you come in. And that is a shortcut, kind of can save some time and give them some good information that they might need to know about you. But that first session or two can be a bit of a data dump. It's you coming in saying, hey, this is who I am. This is where I've been. This is what I've been through. And this is what I really want to work on. So that makes it a little different than the sessions to follow. It's going to get easier and you're going to be able to just eventually go in there, sit down, 
take a deep breath and just start talking. So it's just kind of to know that the logistics and the paperwork, that's pretty short-lived. It's just upfront. You have to take care of that housekeeping. And so I guess maybe this idea of some people go into the first therapy session and they're like, oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if this is really going to work. And maybe one thing to do an internal check is, did you feel comfortable disclosing the most important things to that person, right? And the most important thing is, do you feel comfortable sharing personal, sensitive information with? Not that you're going to throw it all out there in the first session, but does it feel like there's that ease, right? Yes, that's super important. And, you know, it's interesting because when I wrote the book, I sort of said that emphatically. Fit is everything. In fact, research shows that's the most important thing to indicate effective therapy is that fit between therapist and client. But that being said, it was pointed out to me by one of my readers that you really can have a level of trepidation and even suspicion or skepticism in the beginning and that a lot of people are that way. And so they have to work through that just like they would with anyone else. So it can take time to warm up, but say you've had a few sessions, if you're still feeling like something is keeping you from being able to reveal yourself, then you want to examine that because that could really impede your progress. And there are different reasons for that. Believe it or not, sometimes it's that you like your therapist too much. Maybe they're so awesome that you want to please them or you want them to like you. And then, gosh, you wouldn't want to start crying and have mascara running down your face because you're going to look like a raccoon and that would be embarrassing. You don't want that to be getting in the way of you really just being able to let go and let anything happen. Right. So, And of course, the, the reverse can be true too. You might just not like the person. You might feel like, gosh, they're cold. They really seem disconnected or there could be anything. I know somebody who stopped going to a therapist because he always took his shoes off and put his socked feet crossed on the table. And it really bothered her. She was like, yuck, you know, smelly feet. Don't do that. I mean, so I don't know. I mean, there could be a lot of reasons why your comfort Mm -hmm. level is not up to where it needs to be for you to be able to not be distracted, not be annoyed or not be pleasing overly. So yeah, you kind of have to find that balance. Right. And I think that leads to this discussion of, because I see people for medication mainly, and many of them have therapists or are thinking about therapists. And I kind of walk with them through the process of that if they're just beginning therapy. But this desire to please your therapist or to not bring up something that you feel is not working in therapy. I always encourage people to say, look, if there's something about therapy that you feel like you're not getting what you need, or you're not sure if it's a good fit, why not bring that up to the therapist? Oh, 100%. And I like, I like that you mentioned that. It's interesting because we really have to think about therapy differently than we think about our other relationships and use the therapy room as a laboratory for experiments. So to push yourself and stretch yourself, to get out of your comfort zone and endeavor to tell the truth, it's a great place to play with that. So many of us are concerned. We don't want to offend someone, whatever it is. You know, we want to be modest and it's just easier not to confront people a lot of times. But if you can do that with your therapist, 
it's good practice for all of your relationships and your therapist will really benefit and appreciate it if you do. So gently pointing out, I noticed you said that thing last week and that wasn't accurate and here's why. That's good for the client to practice speaking up and making sure that things are clear. And it might be too that there's something about the process that could be improved. Any kind of preference that you have or question that you have is fair game. And you should always feel free to comment on the process and definitely check in with how your treatment's going. And how are things between us should always be an okay conversation. So that could be brought up by your therapist or it could be initiated by the client, just kind of check in and how are we doing? How is this working for you? Is there anything we can tweak to make it better? And I like to check in with clients with any new exercise. You know, if we're trying a breathing technique or maybe a visualization or some type of healing tool, you know, I always like to ask them, how was that for you? Because often I find out good information. Like either we got to do a lot more of that or maybe let's go in a different direction. And you don't want to waste your time. You're paying for it. So you want to practice just being really vocal and really real. Right. And well, actually on that thinking about, okay, wasting time, some people talk to me and say, I just don't know what I'm getting out of therapy. <laughs> right. And that's such a complex question, right? How do you address that with people when they ask you that? That's a good question. And I think, again, this comes back a bit to taking responsibility. So as a client or a patient, either is fine, you want to kind of guide the process and make sure you don't go in there and small talk. It's kind of common for for clients to come in and want to kind of recount their week, but they can get into the weeds, into details that don't matter. And it it starts to feel like the conversation you would have with any acquaintance, right? I mean, telling a long story about what happened at Starbucks. And it can be a way to fill the time up to avoid the deeper stuff. Clients will distract from bothersome topics and they're very creative about it. Some of them will just talk nonstop. And if that's the pattern, then a good clinician will call it out, slow them down, ask them to take a deep breath and have a look at that and maybe redirect them to the topic at hand or or to what's going on deeper or what they're feeling underneath. But if the client is saying, I don't know what I'm getting out of it, if it's the case that that relationship is being driven by the client because some therapists are client-centered, they'll kind of let the client take the lead. And so it's kind of on the client too then to go deeper and to get into what it is that they came in there for. What is it that they really want to address? Because sometimes you can look at your therapist and go, oh my God, you're the same as all those other people in my life. I'm totally snowing you right now. You don't really get me. You're just looking at the facade. You're looking at the mask and I've fooled you too. But that doesn't serve you because you can't grow from that. But having that conversation, now that's where that's where the growth could happen, right? If you say to your therapist, you know what? I'm giving you the same kind of persona that I share out in the world. And it's not the real me. 
And I feel like you don't really know me. And I, I know that I'm getting in the way of that. Maybe I, I'm not comfortable letting you see the real me, but I just feel like this is really superficial and you're not helping me. You know, that could be a jumping off place for something really deep and transformative to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I bet. Because, I mean, that is maybe the issue that someone has with other relationships in their life, right? Not being able to get deeper. And, you know, that is, like you said, the laboratory for therapy to figure out what your barriers are to kind of moving forward or developing deeper connections sometimes. So, right. Again, taking charge of that process. And don't be passive because therapy isn't something that that is done to you. It's something you undertake. And it's always up to the client to be the one to change. It's up to the client to do the work. The therapist is there as a facilitator. So you can point the finger at them if they're not doing that job. But if if you're Mm -hmm. not changing, then you got to ask some bigger questions and don't be passive. Don't go in there and, and wonder, well, gosh, what the magic wand hasn't taken effect yet. Mm-hmm. I must be wasting my money. Rather, just look at yourself and, and ask, you know, all right, how am I going to communicate to my therapist that I'm not getting anything out of this and that I am having doubts? So a little bit just about the whole long-term process of therapy. What is the frequency of therapy? How long would someone expect therapy to go on for? And I know it varies, but what's kind of a general explanation or answer to that question? Yeah, that's a good question, Josephine, because I think a lot of people will be stopped from going thinking that it's just going to go on forever and it's going to be so much time and so much money and there's no end in sight. And it doesn't have to be like that. There are forms of therapy that are designed to be quick, like brief therapy. But I think what's more common is that it's just going to be catered to the client and to the case. So what do you think would be the question I would ask? You know, what sounds good to you? You don't want to imagine it as a quick fix. I don't think most therapy modalities are a quick fix. It's more of you want this to be a journey and you want to be able to kind of take your time. What is probably the most typical and what I would say is sort of the classical setup is, and this is apart from psychoanalysis, which was like multiple times a week, but most people don't have the budget for that these or the time these days. So I think what's really typical now is like once a week for an hour or for a 50-minute hour and trying to go every week is a good idea because you have to have some kind of momentum. You know, it's not really a, oh, I just feel like going this week. I don't feel like going. Mm -hmm. You know, you're really going to get out what you put in. And then there will be times when a client wants a longer session. That could be for lots of reasons. Sometimes it's the initial session, oh my gosh, I, I have so much to share, you know, including background and what's going on now. Let's have an hour and a half. That's totally normal. Sometimes clients want a longer session every single time. If they have a long commute, they want to make the most of it. Or if they just find that, you know, some people feel like, gosh, that 50 minutes goes by so quickly and I feel like I'm just getting started. So they might like a longer session. And then there might be times when more than once a week is indicated. That could be because there's a crisis, something big that needs addressing. It could be because it's the beginning and there's a lot more to do. 
It can also be like, say, if you're in treatment for EMDR or for some kind of or hypnosis or something like that, sometimes there's like a before and after, like a, a debrief session to get you ready, to get you primed, and then to kind of understand how it went for you. So there can be reasons for more than weekly, but I'd say that's typical. And then as far as the duration goes, that varies a lot. I appreciate it when people imagine that it's going to be at least, say, a few months and then maybe thinking like a year is probably spacious, but for a couple, they may say, gosh, we want to work on a relationship, but it's really hard getting here and we don't have the budget for forever. And so let's just, let's budget for 10 sessions. And that would be kind of like probably a good minimum to think about, I would say. Right. Okay. And I think you also brought up the point of, you know, you need a momentum in therapy. So maybe going once a month, you're not going to get a lot accomplished in that once a month visit because you really spend a lot of your time just updating your therapist on kind of what's going on instead of being able to really get deeper. I think so. You know, there are exceptions to every rule. A once a month type of a rhythm might be good if you've done a course of therapy, say weekly for a year, and then you say, all right, I just want to check in with you. I just want the monthly tune up. That could be a reason why you're only going monthly, or it could be travel, logistics, things like that. But yeah, that would be more of a maintenance routine, I would say, after you've done something a little more intensive. Yeah. So kind of this thinking that just because you're done with maybe intensive weekly therapy, you might just want to say, you know, I'd love to come back if I need to in the future. And it seems like the door is often always open to clients to return as needed. I'm aware of the time and I don't want to keep the listener too long, but I think we really did touch on a lot of the high yield questions that people might have. I think one thing we didn't talk about yet is the confidentiality piece of things. How do you counsel people on what confidentiality is in therapy? and what to expect. Yeah. You know, I, I think confidentiality is your best friend in therapy. It is really what distinguishes this relationship from any other. That idea that this is between you and your therapist and whatever you bring in, that can be very, very freeing. And nothing is off limits. And you have that guarantee that it's not going anywhere, this information. I mean, there are certain exceptions to that. So you want to be careful to, like I said, read your consent form because there might be very rare cases where your therapist is required by law to like report abuse of an elder or a child, you know, or if somebody's going to hurt themselves or someone else, that might be a case where a clinician would be mandated to report. But by and large, nothing is ever shared outside of the dyad, outside of you and your therapist in that room. And so what is said is really, really sacred. And that means you can say anything. That goes for your spouse, your doctor. I mean, your therapist isn't going to reveal anything that you share with anybody unless you sign a release form giving them permission to do so. So it's pretty secure and that's rare in this world. And even if you were to bump into your therapist at the grocery store, they're not going to out you, so to speak. They're not going to approach you and chat with you and want to meet who you're with. You know, it's a very professional relationship and it's understood that your privacy is paramount 
So if you were to approach your therapist in that kind of scenario, sure, they will be receptive and friendly probably, but they aren't going to seek you out outside of the session, or at least that's not customary. You know, really most therapists will honor confidentiality in the room, outside of the room, and under every circumstance. So what if in the case that your therapist, you know, you have a friend who goes to the same therapist, or you're worried that there might be a little bit of a overlap between topics brought up in that therapy session and your therapy session? You mean if you had a therapist and your friend has the same therapist? Yeah, or, or maybe you knew somebody who goes to the same therapist. I'm sure that would be a concern, maybe. Yeah, that's a good thing to bring up with the therapist and or the friend. So most therapists would not share anything between the two clients, even if the clients are friends. So Mm -hmm. there should be that measure of security. And I would suggest checking in with the therapist about that and, and just make it explicit. Dear therapist, (laughs) I understand that you don't share anything that we talk about, and I know that my friend is seeing you also. I just want to make sure. And of course, you'll get that promise and that reassurance. But your friend is also freely sharing whatever they want to share with your therapist. And so even though there won't be cross-contamination, if you will, with that information on your therapist's part, your therapist will probably know you both very intimately, and are you okay with that? A lot of times people are, but sometimes you might think, hmm, I don't really want my best friend going to my same therapist because I want to be able to talk about my best friend, and I don't want my therapist to also have an alliance with my best friend getting input about me. You have to decide what is your boundary, what's healthy. I like to keep it really clean, so I would definitely recommend thinking twice about who you share your therapist with. And if you are going to recommend your therapist to someone that you know, do have that conversation with your therapist about what's comfortable and what's not. Yeah. And I think kind of bottom line about the discussion is you should feel comfortable bringing up whatever is on your mind to your therapist. And if you have a problem with that or feel that you have some barriers that are in the way to bring that up, you have to start thinking about appropriateness of therapy, right? I mean, of course, do you feel comfortable about talking about that with your therapist? Because that in itself is helpful. So is there anything before we say goodbye that you think is really important that we didn't touch on in this kind of summary of your book. And we're going to put your book information on the description of the episode so people can read it and learn quite a bit more in more detail about what we're talking about. But is there a topic that we didn't talk about or any parting words for the listener? I think this has been a really thorough conversation and I've certainly enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Josephine. I guess the, the, maybe the last thought would be, I want to normalize therapy and I think we'd have a better, more peaceful world if everybody felt welcome to go to seek therapy. And so the invitation is to consider whether it might help you and endeavor to check it out. Right. I agree. I think the goal of your book is to, like you said, relieve anxiety about even beginning that process and thinking that, you know, it could be for you if if you kind of get past the worry or anxiety of what it is, right? And how much you could accomplish, you know, in terms of personal growth. Yeah. It's a good thing to round out your wellness regime. Exactly. Yeah. 
That is true. Well, I really appreciate your time and the time you spent to write this book and the time you're spending with me today to share and educate the listener about it. I really appreciate it. It's a great book. Thank you, Josephine. (laughs) Talk to you later. Thank you. This has been Mind Stories. With remote appointments in California and offices in downtown Los Angeles, Santa Monica, Hermosa Beach, Marina Del Rey, and Echo Park, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thank you for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.